You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Feel like who art Ed? Try to spice it. Who art it? Mr. Wood, art Ed, me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I actually have two guests on. I have Caitlin and Corby, hosts of Those Art Teachers. Thank you for thank you for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. We're really excited. So uh, right off the bat, when I have people coming on, I want to make sure that I am plugging their pluggables. And I got to say, hosts of Those Art Teachers, a new, new-ish podcast for art teachers. It was new when I first contacted you, um, and you have put up with me like putting this off for like what two months now so i appreciate your patience but um the first question i have because those art teachers podcast for art teachers obviously but as i read it how should i be pronouncing it because i always think of my life in terms of a sitcom so i'm like oh those art teachers (laughs) but then i could also be like those art teachers like what what are you, what are you going for there? That's a great question. I think both. That was that was kind of the play of the whole naming of it too. Was like mm, those art teachers. Like we're doing what we do. Okay, so what I'm what I'm getting from you is I actually picked something up correctly for like the first time ever. I think so. <laughs> Mark your calendar. And I think it can be taken either way, like you said. And that's kind of like art. You know, it's like. It's in the eye of the beholder. So it kind of depends on your perspective of art teachers and how you know us. So, um, yeah. And we are going to do an episode on art teacher stereotypes. So we have that. We have that up our sleeve. I I appreciate that you are bringing the ambiguity and the open-ended connections and multiple viewpoints to the podcast medium. As I myself started off unsure if I was calling it who art ed, like art education, you know, about different subjects and different people or who arted, but ultimately could not resist a good fart jokes. Sorry, I was gonna say I totally interpreted it as who arted, like the fart, the fart joke. That's the way it tended to roll anyways. Um, And that's, that's what just flows more smoothly. So that's, that's where I ended up. But I, I started off with trying to think like, oh, there'll be some clever wordplay, but it turns out it's just a fart joke. That's that's what happens when, you know, you have an art teacher planning stuff, the authority figure with the mind of a child. But um, today 
we're going to be talking about a contemporary artist that I am a little bit embarrassed to say I didn't know too much about before before you mention it. The the way that I typically choose the artists for um, most of the episodes is I ask my guests who who do they like. And so far, for the most part, people are calling out people that I haven't covered yet. And you were you were no different. You said your favorite artist was Nick Cave, a contemporary artist. I'm just curious, why'd you choose Nick Cave? So I love Nick Cave for so many reasons. And I think my answer is multi-layered, just like Nick Cave's work is multi-layered. I actually saw my first Nick Cave piece in 2015 when I was visiting a friend who moved to Seattle and Caitlin had actually just taught me how to knit. And so I was getting into fiber art at the time. And so when I saw this first piece of his and it was a sound suit, uh, which I know we're going to talk about later more or more about that later. But when I saw this sound suit and it was just so bright and so colorful and there was just so much texture and visual stimulation, I was just immediately in love with his work and I had no I had no idea about him no idea of the context or anything I was just like oh my gosh this is amazing and from that so it held this like special connection to with like other artists because Caitlin I just taught me how to knit and then this just like beautiful visual tactile experience Um, so that was the first layer of knit cave for me and so then from that I went and started researching, oh, who is this artist I saw at the Seattle Art Museum? It's Nick Cave. What does he do? What's he about? And then the second part of his work, which is really huge for me, is like the symbolism of having such a heavy concept. Um, That really resonated with me as well. So on the surface level, you've got these really beautiful creations that are like characters and they have so much visual pop and they just draw you in. But then the reasoning for him making the sound suits and that it is this response um, to a social justice issue and has this deep, un- like this deep underlying meaning and um, context to it. That's what really sold it for me. So all of that wrapped up in one layer or in one entity of Nick Cave's work was like, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And that pretty much started the Nick Cave train for me and all of his pieces I feel that way about everyone is so unique and different I love that he incorporates performance into his work I love that he also incorporates community into his work it's just like it just fills my heart with so much like joy looking at them and then that symbolic context that also makes us connect with those um, topics about humanity as well that's interesting. So not to tip my hand too much right off the bat, but um, my reaction was actually very, very different. I um, I didn't come to appreciate and enjoy his work until I had done more research. Um, my, my gut reaction was a little bit different, but I kind of landed in the same place. But getting back to the sort of beginning, because I always like to talk about at least a little bit of the artist's bio. In in this case, he's a contemporary artist. So like societal context in which he was creating was like America today. Not too much to inform my audience about there, but a little bit about him. He was born February 4th, uh, 1959. He's, he's from Missouri and his life, it seems like pretty straight shot. Like 
he kind of knew what he wanted to do. He goes, gets a BFA in 1982 from the Kansas City Art Institute. He studied fibers and fashion, but he also like studied modern dance, um, which I always find interesting. I, I like to see when artists have different, um, different areas of expertise that they're bringing together. I think that ultimately ends with a, a stronger artist. I think um, one of the things that I remember being in school and a, a teacher who was really influential on me sort of was lamenting the fact that everybody seems to specialize these days because really you kind of become marketable when you're known for a thing, right? Um, when you've got that consistent style that everybody sees and they know that's yours. And it used to be for a lot of people that they kind of experimented in different media and found ways of creating something that was unique and different. And if you were an artist, the assumption was you could work with anything. And I get the sense that Nick Cave is kind of of that educational philosophy because like I said he was doing different stuff in different media he went on to his MFA at Cranbrook so he's then in Michigan he's around the Midwest and he settled at SAIC after his mid I should clarify School of the Art Institute of Chicago greatest school in the history of the world produced such fine minds as mine um and after his MFA like I said he started teaching at SAIC he's still there and it's a perfect fit because if you're not familiar with this, um, the Art Institute of Chicago, one of the things that's kind of unique about them, I always joke that like I got a bachelor's in coloring from a pass fail school, you know, like as, <laughs> but like he, he's teaching at this school that really is a conceptual school that encourages a lot of experimentation. The pass fail nature of the, of the classes is deliberately to get people out of their comfort zone and to encourage people to experiment in different stuff. So like I was doing stuff in lithography. I was doing stuff, you know, I was, I was sculpting in wax for, for, you know, casting and stuff like that, like stuff that had nothing to do with my original background when I went to school, but I'm learning about different media and I'm learning it from some awesome people. Like I'm, okay-ish on a good day, but like the people there really know what they're doing, including Nick Cave. And part of what they're doing is encouraging their students to expand their horizons. And that's why SAIC philosophically is like the perfect fit for Nick Cave. To go off of that, it's interesting because I don't have any, like we, Caitlin and I don't have experience with going to SAIC. I just have like fantasized about that school, but I know Nick Cave has approached his work in the sense of like before he made the decision, I guess, to go into fashion and textiles, he was like a gatherer in the sense of like materials and just like being resourceful and using what he had around him like as a kid. And also, I th if I remember correctly, he would help, I think he would help his mom make like clothing or like alter things or like got really into that. So he kind of has grown like up with that mentality of just like, I'm going to make things work. I'm going to create from what I have. And it does lend itself really well to this experimentation, this fabrication and this mentality of like, we are the source of figuring things out. And from that experimentation can come all of these beautiful things. But then behind those beautiful things, that's interesting that it's that concept that really does make that beautiful thing even more heavy and kind of weighted. 
Yeah, and um, you know, like I say, in in terms of his biography, I feel like it's going to be a really quick one here, just because he was an artist who, from everything I've read, from an early age, he kind of just knew he was a maker. He was a he was a person who would experiment, and like you said, he was a gatherer. Um, I have this quote of his that I think kind of sums up his approach fairly well, in my mind at least, where he said, as a, an artist. When he would go do residencies, he didn't um, he didn't pack a bunch of stuff. He says, I would literally just grab my backpack. I would ship nothing. I would bring nothing. I would be like, well, I'm going to figure it out when I get there. And that's when I started to have this massive expansion of material language. And I think that's such a a good way of thinking about it. Like the limitations of having nothing and having to be resourceful with what you find on hand and respond to that. Just like he wouldn't bring like his friends and people that he was accustomed to working with. He didn't bring his crew out to a place. He would work with the people there. Um, He would work whether he was like in Louisiana putting together um, like a beat-a-thon and social service agencies, or he's in New York and he's inviting the audience to participate in a dance-based town hall. He's he's like engaging with the people there, creating with them, and creating with what he finds on hand in that different location. Well, and I think to relate this back to Corby and I as well, like when you mentioned earlier about an artist kind of sticking to like one media or, and how Nick Cave is kind of multimedia, multifaceted with performance and choreography and fashion and fiber. And I think it's interesting because Corby and I have also gone through iterations of ourselves as artists over the years. And we both started as 2D like drawing artists and have then gotten in through college. Like we, we went through a phase. We, we a phase <laughs> sounds like a teenager thing. Um, but where we were doing, um, performance art together and like photography. And, uh, then after college, I started getting more into fiber art and knitting. And it was really a way to like take a break from four and a half years of drawing and painting and, and racking my brain over, my BFA show and everything. Um, and I didn't really consider in a way knitting a form of art, but, um, when Corby wanted to get into it too, and we started doing fiber art together, it, it really, when you said that, it made me think like, oh yeah, like we both also jump around as well. And just basically whatever we touch, like we're trying to make art out of it. And, I think that is kind of a sign of, I mean, not to like to our own horns, but I think artists have that ability that it's not just one media that we latch onto. And I think that is kind of a, um, a modern idea of a way to market artists. Like you said, it's kind of a way to have like a brand almost It's a branded thing, but artists, I think are able to take any media that we are interested in. And I think Nick Cave does that really well. Well, and I think it's one of those things that's kind of, um, it gets back to different people's mindsets because some people are really focused on the craft 
and you know look at painting or drawing or sculpture as you know the steps in a process to create a result you know if you were if you were looking at the dutch masters they would be talking about the the umbers that they're using in the underpainting and then what are the pigments that they're using for the glazes and the steps that go into each of those things whereas in the postmodern era, a lot more people are focused conceptually on, you know, how are we generating new and innovative and different ideas? Because let's face it, today we have the tools at our disposal to to render all sorts of things without the artist's hand directly involved. And yet still we have this urge to create and still we appreciate these things that are new and different. And like I think of I think of art not as paintings and drawings, but as the result of creativity, right? Um, it's about that. I personally center that innovation in it, and again, that's probably because I come from from a conceptual school. But I, I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think you're right. Like when you're an artist, you have that drive. You have it's it's a compulsion, really. Like I can't stop picking things apart. And, you know, I was, I didn't start off in painting and drawing. I started off as a terrible musician. And then I then I went to school for painting and drawing. And while I was there, I was studying printmaking. And, you know, I, I find myself, like you said, you were initially dismissive of fibers. I, I have come to, to know the surest sign that like I'm going to become obsessed with something is when I start off completely dismissive of it. Yeah. Um, you know, which again gets me back to Nick Cave. If I'm being 100% honest, when I first started looking at his work, I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is so esoteric and so inaccessible. It was the kind of thing that I looked at as kind of self-indulgent and the the kind of stuff that makes me cringe at a, a certain amount of contemporary art. I've come around. Don't hate me to- too much, but that was that was my gut reaction. <laughs> we don't I think that's the beauty of it. I do not hold that against you. I felt actually really similarly when I first started looking at it. And we'll get into picking that apart uh, a little bit later, but I do want to before we get into the sound suits and our reactions to it and aesthetic judgments and all of that, um I do want to to circle back to one other thing. Um and this is an, another thing that just it it just brings me back to my 20s you know he's civically minded and the school of the art institute you know, i know on your show you talk about different philosophies of education um i know you're big tab people uh i came i came from a background our pedagogical framework to use the big words was about critical multiculturalism um looking critically at things, working with people, advocating with people, and and all of that through the arts. And again, you see some, I at least see these connections in Nick Cave's work, because as I said, he worked with the people in the residencies where he would go to be an artist in residence. And the sound suits, which he's best known for, the inspiration came after uh, his reaction to the 1991, um, the police beating of Rodney King. 
And with these sound suits, what he's doing is creating work that he he described it as a makeshift suit of armor um, that's obscuring the figure and concealing the race and gender and other identifiers. And he is using that as a way of conceptualizing and reacting to often tragic incidents that we're seeing. I mean, Rodney King was 1991, and yet we still see, you know, George Floyd is a recent one that sparked an equally large awakening for a lot of people um, in just in terms of the way that people are interacting within our society. But he's tackling these large social issues and social justice issues through his arts. And so after the break, we're going to take a little bit of time to look at and discuss one of his sound suits. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. So now we're going to be looking at one of his sound suits. He's created hundreds of these sound suits. They're extremely popular. Um, They've been in all sorts of museums. I mean, you said you saw him at uh, the Seattle Art Museum. He just recently had a retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. And, you know, these sound suits are really, really popular and extremely varied. Do you have a preferred one i mean should we go back to the original the 92 the the sticks sound suit that he created in response to rodney king or do we want to do a fun one so i do think maybe it would be neat to contrast them because i'm also curious to hear your opinion on the first sound suit but i do think that there are some very different things happening in that first one in response to the rodney king incident versus the wave that the sound suits took. How do you feel about that? Okay. Um, so I, I love that you're, you're turning this around on me. Usually I make my guests speak first, but if you, if you want to hear my opinion on the, the, the original sound suit, um, that first sound suit he constructed, he was gathering sticks to construct a sound suit. Uh, it's 
almost like a suit of armor. It, to me, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it it looks painful. I think of it as like a torturous device for the wearer because the texture of it is so rough. But at the same time, there's something kind of interesting about the way that a figure wearing that suit is a little bit protected and has, I mean, physical wood around them to to create a physical barrier. But, but it also, um, the thing that I find most interesting is the way that it still feels like a human sort of a silhouette. And at the same time, I can't tell male or female, black, white, any sort of person from any time in any culture could be in there. And so in some ways, it reminds me of um, a three-dimensional manifestation of like Keith Haring's work, where it becomes this silhouette that is the archetypal figure that we can sort of project onto and we can see ourselves in. And you know, one of my one of my good friends talked about how he loved living in New York City because he could just get lost in the crowd in a way that some people find to be a nightmare sort of situation. But but to some people, it's kind of liberating because you're you're completely concealed and you can you can be your more authentic self in that way. Yeah. You know, because you're not worried about other people's judgments of who you are in that moment. Yeah. So that's really interesting because when I look at the original sound suit, I see it completely differently, but similar in some ways, but based on the figure that's created, it reminds me more of like a bear. Like it doesn't really seem human, but it seems more animalistic in a way because of the way that it like branches out, which that's not supposed to be punny because I know it's made out of twigs. (laughs) But like the embrace the, the spatial quality of it is just like, yeah, embrace the funds. But the spatial quality is it does seem very much like, hey, I'm here. I need to take up space. I need you to know that I'm here. And it's very powerful in that way. And whereas I think of a human that we're smaller, we are like more to ourselves. And in response to that incident, too, which is a very controversial thing and feeling like there that there needs to be this hidden identity because someone's in danger to me it, it seems very logical that you would want to take up space and you'd want to be like hey kind of like i'm here fear me and like kind of notice that i am here and i guess i think that the shape that's created like that silhouette is what i read that as in the like first interpretation of it and the sound too so i think about when you said that when you wear it the way that the sound would be created with the twigs is like clinking or like clacking and like an interaction of like the way that the person embodies the suit becomes a performance and it becomes like, Hey, I'm letting you know, I am taking up space and that we, we are here. We exist whoever we are in this suit. And I cannot not see like the sounds or like hear the sounds when I see the suit as well. Like to me, it's like an all sensory experience. Like I imagine being in the suit and that like how that would feel to occupy the space of the suit. And well, so to me, what's interesting about that is you see the twigs, like the, the sticks and everything like that as building it up and making it a more powerful figure. Whereas I see, I see sticks as a, like a brittle material. It's like, it's that weak attempt at a shell. 
it's a you know what I'm saying like I mean to, to mm-hmm. use a, a really really low analogy it's like I mean which the pig's house when it was built of sticks it blew away you know I mean I'm thinking of that as as something that is protective to a to a degree and builds someone up and can be built up and yet it's something that can be broken down just as easily and so it's it's attempting to support and yet still feels vulnerable and fragile in some way it's a tenuous sort of um it's a tenuous sort of protection yes and i feel like this might get into controversial territory but with what you just said i think that is also to me, that is the goal of using the twigs of like, hey, this is all I had in response to this situation. And I say I as like I'm Nick Cave, but I won't speak for Nick Cave. Um, but to choose that material that you said of like, okay, the twig makes me think of that this is kind of strong, but at the same time, it's more brittle. But that's all that the artist had in order to build up this safety mechanism. I think that's super powerful. Because to me, that's very symbolic and metaphorical as a response to the Rodney King beating and to that, to the topic of police brutality in itself, like to be dealing with that and to be in that headspace of basically feeling like this is all I've got and this is all I can do to protect myself like that. That's like very heavy. Agreed. It is very heavy, probably literally heavy. And I mean, just metaphorically, the... Yeah. The the topics that he's getting at are like I said, there's some of the there's some of the stickiest, thorniest issues that sadly we're still dealing with today. I mean, it's as long as people have been around, people have been treating others badly. And this is an interesting and unique response to that. I think it's interesting what you said about literally heavy as well, because I read that I think each suit is between like 30 and 50 pounds. And um, that also makes you think about like as the performer and to be carrying that weight and that like I also the metaphorical like weight of um, of people of color carrying that idea around with them that they this is like a armor or that they need to protect themselves. Um, I think that I can kind of see that connection there between the physical and the metaphorical way as well. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is the way that he plays with these things that I don't even know how to categorize it. Like, is it fashion? Is it sculpture? Is it performance? It's, it's cutting across a couple of different boundaries, which I, again, I think is really nice and fresh and innovative. Um, and he does that better than than so many other people because I, I think you and I, we've all seen those pieces where maybe the ambition is there, but you kind of cringe a little bit as, as they're maybe too heavy-handed or maybe the workmanship's not there. Like, he's one of those people who he really, oh, now that I, I I was about to say threads the needle as I'm talking about a, a guy who's in fashion. But like he So really, many puns. I know. Just keep the puns coming. Yeah. I, I mean I am a dad, so I feel like I have to, right? But he he does bring all of these different things together 
at just the right balance. Like there's just enough of that quality craftsmanship that like, even if you don't understand the work at first glance, you can recognize this was well-made. This was very deliberately constructed by somebody who knows what they're doing, you know? Um, And as I said, for me, it was one that uh, it's hard to even say one it's, it's so many different works, but, but his body of work really landed with me differently when I, when I went back and did the research Um, and understanding, understanding all of the different things that he's going at. Like I needed time to reflect. And again, I think partially that's probably the point you know, you're confronted with something that's so odd and unexpected that you have to you have to take a pause, right? I mean, that's probably a little bit of the value of it. Yeah, I think any good work, it makes you pause, right? And reflect and maybe even think about it for a long time and come back to it. Because if you can understand it within like three seconds, then you just move on, right? I would agree with that. Or if you can understand it within three seconds, I feel smart and validated. And, <laughs> you know, that that's what I want. I want things that confirm my worldview. Well, that's too easy. And I think, I was going to say, I think that's what Nick Cave does so well, though, is on the surface level, it is this questioning. It's it, it can look joyful. It can look fun. It can look kind of intimidating. It can be all these different characters that then stop you in your tracks and make you backtrack and think, wait, am I thinking of this the correct way? Or like, what is this supposed to be? And it is this like, to me, it is kind of a fun game. Like I like trying to figure out like, Ooh, what, what would this character be? Like, how would the person who's wearing the suit and embody it, how would they move? How would they interact with the world? Like it becomes almost this imaginary constructed environment with this character that becomes built up. Yeah, and I I do like the way that he's created so many of them with so many different materials. We talked so much about the the initial piece that was made with the sticks, but he's done this with fur and sequins and and colorful materials and and you know, like basically like you name it, he has made like he's used children's toys to construct these things. Like every every kind of material you could imagine has been used to create these pieces that are I would say running the full scope of human emotions. They're they're somber and meditative and they're joyous and celebratory and they're loud and vibrant and you know sometimes quiet and and a little bit more contemplative. Um which I again I I think is kind of interesting that he's doing all of this in what looks like, you know, <laughs> a muppet suit or something. You know, but I think we've covered a, a, quite a bit about like how they're constructed, and I feel like I, I'm sorry, I feel like I bullied the conversation a little bit about, you know, my response to it and and the aesthetics, but um, you know, these are more than just sculptures or 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 items to wear. Do you want to talk a little bit about how like he incorporates performance and and the experience of the suit as well? Yeah. So if you ever get the chance, which Trust me, I have tried. Um, so if you get a chance to see his sound suits in a museum, 
usually, yes, they're like displayed as a sculpture. However, with his residencies or happenings, they're usually performances that go with the sound suits. And so he choreographs the dances or he picks people who will choreograph the dance and is training the performers of how to wear the sound suit. And the sound suits live beyond just being set up like in a museum for you to view. Uh, I've never gotten to attend one of those happenings or performances, but they are widely available on YouTube and they are fantastic. I know there's a really great Nick Cave documentary that's on YouTube, I believe. And I think it's his residency when he was in Louisiana. Um, but they're incredible to watch because it really does showcase too that the sound suit is designed not just to sit as a sculpture, but what sound is it going to make? Is it going to make sound? How is the performer able to move? Is it um, limiting their ability or is it giving them a more unique ability? And to really watch them come to life, I think is its own experience in itself. And I think it's incredible too, that there's just so much thought that goes into the, it really is wearable art. There's so much thought that goes into the design on the surface level, but then how the performer is going to be able to handle that sound suit that's built. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And I think, um, that's a good point to wrap up on. Like these are, these are sculpted garments to be worn and experienced. And part of that experience is not just the visual or the tactile it is also auditory, which is why they're called sound suits. I, I don't know if we even explicitly called that out, but it is worth knowing they're called sound suits because they do make a sound as people move in them and all of that. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's a poop joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. I think we know what my answer is going to be. Okay, so Corby's going with the loo. Got it. Thinks they're terrible. Wants to get rid of them. (laughs) Absolutely. Totally. (laughs) No, I think it's so important. We should have all of them in the lube. All of them in the lube. Caitlin, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I wish there was a fourth option where that like, Go yes, ahead, the Louvre. The okay, well, yes, the Louvre, but like, I want to see them in motion like Corby was talking about. I, I like that they can be displayed, you know, documented as a sculpture, but there's so much meaning and significance to this, the choreography and the performance piece. And that's so difficult. And maybe, I don't know, Corby, I've never seen these in person when they're displayed as a sculpture, are there videos also next to them or in the room, like showing them in motion? So it depends. I've seen so many. Um, and also I know he's in New York right now, which I'm like, oh, I want to go to the retrospective. But generally the sound suit is by itself. Only that I've seen when it's in a specific show, like when I went to Nashville to see his, um, I forget what the show was called there, but it wasn't a full retrospective, but it was like specific to Nashville. They did have more video performances within that show of his. So it just depends. Okay. Well, I would say the Louvre, but we need video evidence as well in the Louvre so that people can see the full kind of spectrum. We need people there just constantly wearing them, like doing some Gilbert and Sullivan thing, you know? Yeah. Is that so hard? 
it's not for them. Um, and I, 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 I kind of go with a yes and on this because I, I don't disagree with any of your points, but, but at the same time for me, this is one that if I'm being a hundred percent honest, most of the ones when I look at them, I don't like it. I, but I, I feel like there's so much to learn for it. To me, it's one that is so conceptual. I, I put it in the lab as a piece that I can learn from and I think about and I, I reflect on um, because of all of the different stuff going on with it. But there's something about it that just, it doesn't land as one that I, I savor and enjoy. It lands to me as one that's primarily about the learning experience and the wonder and the ideas and connections it sparks in me, which I don't, to, to be clear, I don't see that as a diminished purpose at all for art. You know, some stuff getting at this segment, the, the point of this segment is to remind people that there are some things we look at and savor and cherish for the ages. There's some things we learn from that, and that's the point, you know? Yeah. I think that's a totally valid point for sure. And that could be, that can be where a lot of the value is like, especially in conceptual art. I think that tends to be the case. Yeah. For me, at least any, um, that's kind of where I land on it. But I do want to say once again, thank you so much, Caitlin and Corby, those art teachers, um, podcast available on all the major platforms. Um, I, I've been listening since you first came across my Instagram feed. I checked it out. I appreciate the perspectives, the thoughts you give, the ideas you share on funding and ways of framing lessons and all of that sort of stuff. So thank you very much for bringing your expertise and insights and helping me come to appreciate an artist I should have known for, for a while. <laughs> thank you so much for um, reaching out to us and having us on your podcast. We've learned a lot from your podcast and appreciate your voice in the art world as well. So it's it's fun to finally meet in person. Well, on video in person. Video. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And I will be putting your links in the show notes. So I would encourage all the other art teachers who have been putting up with my show for some time. Check out Check out uh, those art teachers. It's delightful. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.